Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. Then we tell you what we learned, fuck-ups and all. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this episode, we are joined by climate activist Robbie Miller. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about the wildfires that are infernoing across the United States. Um, and sort of use that as a, an opportunity to look at where the climate change movement is at and uh, how 2020 has been going for climate activists. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's been bad. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> how you doing, Robbie? Pretty good. Um, I've had a, a pretty stellar summer. For once, Alberta is not on fire. So it's kind of nice to talk about the wildfires in other places rather than the ones affecting us for a change. Yeah, there was just that giant hailstorm, but otherwise Alberta has had a pretty normal summer. Uh, Robbie, the eternal optimist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's like normal summer as well for what we're what we're in right now. Not really related to wildfires, but just talking about Alberta is that we've had five years where five years in a row of like devastatingly bad harvests here in Alberta. So. Normal for people living in cities, not so normal for people living outside of them. You've been doing like onion farming, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so it's been hitting close to home for me because, yeah, we the crops on the, the farm that I'm working has been real bad. Just like weather dependent or like has it been dry there? Yeah. So it was mostly actually the opposite. We had a really wet June and May. And so that just... The fields were so wet that a lot of stuff just couldn't grow, um, mm. or at least not grow well. So August has been pretty good, but it was a case of too little too late, apparently. Ah, oh, that sucks. Uh, but I mean, at least everything's not on fire, I guess. <laughs> Everything is not on fire. Small victories. Um, but that is in stark contrast to California and much of the West Coast, uh, where there are currently more than 1,500 active wildfires burning, which is a lot. Yeah, I'll be honest with you guys. I have had a disaster overload in my news this year, so I have not been following the fires very closely. I know that there are fires. I know that they were particularly bad lately because last week Vancouver had like the worst air in the world other than like the ground zero for fires, so I couldn't go outside for a week. But other than that, I you'll have to fill me in. I'm sorry. <laughs> No worries. I pulled together some facts, so we can start with that, maybe. Yeah, I heard that this was, like, the worst year on record by, like, tw so it's twice as bad as last year, which was the worst year on record before. Is that right? I'm not sure what metric you're going off of, but it has been a very bad wildfire year. Are you talking about, like, acres burned, or...? I don't know. <laughs> I just heard that it was twice as bad as last year, and last year was the worst on record so far. And so now things are just really, yeah, I don't want to say heating up. Um, <laughs> Get I feel like it's too soon <laughs> to make a joke like that. But they're not, things aren't great. I don't know. Fill me in. <laughs> Robbie, it sounded like you recognized the stat that Kyla was mentioning. So um, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, so I think the twice as bad as last year, which was also the worst year ever, it's the cumulative number of fire detections, which is a weird way of saying that they look for fires by satellite. 
And so, yeah, this year there were almost twice as many satellite detections of small fires breaking out all over the West Coast than in any other year. Okay, that makes sense because um, I found that in the U.S. this year, there have been 7 million acres of fire of uh, forest burned, and that is 1 million more acres burned than the 10-year average, um, which is hugely bad, but not like twice as bad. So makes sense that those were two different things. <laughs> Look at us go with our stats. <laughs> yeah, the uh, for people who want a really good rundown, the New York Times climate section released a really good report on it on September 24th, 2020, which on day of recording is yesterday. And by the time you're listening to it, who knows uh, <laughs> how long ago that was. Uh, but yeah, they had a they have a very good sort of interactive setup where you can see the uh, the burns and it's it's quite bad. So I was talking to my grandmother about these fires because she is way better following the news than I am. And she was like, California has been burning a lot lately. Surely there's nothing left. Is that true? No. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if they're like, I guess California must be huge. But if these these wildfires are, are massive, and they've been burning every year. So like, is it just reburning in places? Is it all different spots? Like, this is nuts. Uh, well, I mean, wildfires generally are a natural occurrence. So like, like the amount of forest area that's being burned is dramatically different. And probably like you get to a catastrophic climate change scenario, you might get to a situation where like most of the forest cover is burned, but we're not at that point just yet. So I think it's, it, it may be reburned. I don't know, but I think a lot of it is sort of newly burned forest or like not um, forests that are, didn't burn like last year. But let me, let me see. <laughs> yeah. Um, the New York Times actually has a really good infographic for that, too. This article is actually... The New York Times is kind of hit or miss with their journalism, but some of their interactive stuff is quite good. Um, and yeah, it's actually one of the things that's quite surprising about this year's forest fires is that they are all, yeah, just new areas that have not burned in previous years. So there's still a lot more surface area of California to burn, though. It's uh, it's not as though it's going to stop when there are no more forests left in California. We're still quite a few years out from that, thankfully. That would that would be really bad for the yeah. record. <laughs> we be able to breathe, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for filling me in. I I know nothing. <laughs> it is um, one thing that I thought was pretty stark about the fires this year are that the first, third, and fourth largest fires in California's history are all this year. I think that gives you like some sense of how unprecedented this is, that like of the top five largest forest fires in California's history, and they've had some really big ones in the past, three of them are just this year. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is quite shocking. Uh, that's in terms of acreage, right? Yeah, I think that is how it's measured. Whew. Whew. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not great. <laughs> there there have also like so far there have been 26 recorded fatalities, but I think um from what I've been seeing it looks like it might be higher once they're able to sort of go in and um and sort of confirm that people have died. Like right now there are people who are missing and not confirmed dead, so at least 26 dead, um but probably more. 
Which, like, if you put it in the context of, I, I think in the Fort McMurray wildfires, which are like the costliest disaster in Canadian history, there was two people that died from that one, and it was um, like a, a motor vehicle crash. So, the fact that these fires in California are happening so fast that people can't get out and they're burning to death is, um, I think that tells you something about the intensity of the situation too. Yeah. It's also one of the other interesting metrics is in terms of how many structures are destroyed. So this affects sort of like how close they're coming to like habitat, like habitated areas. Cause if they were all just burning in, forests no one would be terribly threatened even if that's a calamity for other reasons um but yeah of the 15 most destructive fires in california's history five of them are currently going on right now or happened this year and looking at the chart it's like there is exactly one fire on that top 15 list that did not happen since the 2000s so it's like in the last 20 years, all of the most destructive fires in California's history have happened, except for one. Yeah, I found stats for American wildfires. So this is not just California, but across the entire United States. And um, from the period of 2000 to 2018, wildfires burned more than twice as much land area per year as in 1985 to 1990. So like basically we're, we're having already double the wildfires that we used to have. Um, and it, there was for a little while a debate amongst emergency management professionals of like, okay, we're seeing like more disasters um, or like wildfires are causing bigger responses, but is that just because people are moving into these like um, more forested areas? And that's for sure part of it. But now um, emergency management personnel are pretty unified that climate change is having a huge impact and uh, you can't just explain it with like um, changing human populations and bad luck that there's a systematic pattern happening and it's getting worse. <laughs> and I mean, even that original thought that it was just because people are moving into like forested areas more often, that also is something that is like bad and deeply linked to the climate crisis that you know, habitat destruction, the constant like march of city size and human disturbances of ecosystems is all related to that same problem. Um, so it's actually interesting that that was their original thought. And that's still a pretty grim thought, uh, even if it hadn't ended up being that no climate change was also a big part of it. Yeah, and it's going to prompt, I think, especially in California, but in various areas, um, discussions about to what extent do you have to retreat from these areas and allow it to go back to its original ecosystem. Otherwise, I mean, it's not just wildfires. They're also having this discussion around flooding and like storm surge and stuff like this too. So going to be real conversations happening in the next decade, I would think. Yeah. And one of the problems that I've seen in California is that that conversation isn't happening in a democratic fashion. Um, <laughs> no. That conversation is mostly happening in insurance company boardrooms where yeah. there are large sections of California that are now just uninsurable. Yeah, absolutely. And there are discussions about what happens if these disasters continue. Like, there's a real risk that the insurance industry will go bankrupt. And then what the fuck do you do? Because a lot of um, government policies are really reliant on 
people getting insurance for this kind of thing. And as soon as you don't have that, like it gets really expensive to be able to address these kinds of disasters and the loss of like livelihoods and stuff from it, which like, (laughs) I really hate framing it in those kinds of like economic terms. But that's a real conversation that governments need to start having. um, Because there is a a real possibility that you won't be able to insure for houses that are in floodplains or close to like the coast and places that are likely to be impacted by wildfires. But there are large communities that live there. And what do you do about that? Or hurricanes, I guess, as those become more problematic too. I mean, I know we're talking about fire specifically, but the insurance thing is going to be a real problem. Um, The hurricanes and wildfires are actually also pretty interesting in terms of how they were linked this year, because there's a large number of tropical storms that also happened on the East Coast this year. Didn't get a huge amount of coverage, but... The news cycles are full. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have time for that. Who who can squeeze all these natural disasters into the, the evening news anymore? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, in between like the rise of fascism in the states and like the pandemic and apparently Greece and Turkey might go to war and nobody is even talking about that. Anyway. <laughs> That's sorry Robbie, you were saying something about the hurricanes. Yeah, the NASA like ocean atmospheric I can't remember what that acronym stands for, NOAA, um, got some really striking images of the smoke plumes and tropical storms interacting because the smoke plumes from California, Oregon, and Washington were traveling east across the US. So like the entire United States was covered in smoke for about a week, Uh, except for the eastern seaboard, because the tropical storms, of which there were three at the time, uh, were pushing so much clean air from the oceans inland uh, that those jurisdictions were free of smoke. And so you see this, like, you can kind of see the weather impacts of the tropical storms by sort of that negative of where they were keeping the smoke from uh, accumulating. So very cool photo. Uh, terrifying also. <laughs> we'll share that on our webpage so that people can check that out. The other thing that um, you've just reminded me of in terms of the hurricane season is for the first time we ran out of names for hurricanes this year and they had to go to like the greek alphabet as a naming convention which is fucked is it is it was it actually the first year i think so um for sure it happened this year yeah it definitely happened this year i didn't know if it was the first though we'll fact check back um also i just want to throw out the fact that at one point uh 10% of oregon's population was under an evacuation alert from their wildfires so This has been a really shitty year for natural disasters, and that's not even counting the pandemic. Yeah, in the middle of a pandemic. Like everyone, everyone talks about, oh, 2020, you suck. Get out of here. But this is it's just going to get worse. Yeah. I saw a funny meme, actually. Maybe I'll share it if I can find it again, where it was a comic and it was like, oh, 2020 sucks. And then, you know, the next panel is 2023 and people are reminiscing about how much they miss 2020. (laughs) At least we got to bake bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was uh, The Simpsons also provided some really great memeable stuff for this uh, because there's a, a great moment of Bart saying, this is the worst day of my life. And then Homer consoling him, the worst day of your life so far. Yeah, classic (laughs) Simpsons, absolutely. Uh, And I've just found, uh, I was looking up the the naming, like if we 
for the first time ever have exhausted our alphabetical names. And I found another fun fact that uh, at no point in the 170 years of Atlantic Basin weather history have so many strong storms formed so quickly. So, you know, just another little fun fact for you guys. Breaking all kinds of records in all the worst ways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's actually, it's projected that if there was a one degree temperature increase, which is like a pretty... If we hit that for climate change and don't go past one degree, that'd be amazing. (laughs) I think we're already there. We're at like nine, three or something. Yeah. So um, this will make this fact even more depressing then. So it's projected that a one degree temperature increase could increase the median area burned um, by as much as 600% in some forests. Uh... (laughs) Yeah, great. Well, I don't have anything nice to say about that, so I'm going to circle back and just let everyone know that uh, this is not the first year ever that we've exhausted the 21 alphabetical names, I guess, given to Atlantic tropical cyclones, Uh, but it is the earliest date in history that we have run out. I guess that's comforting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Let's talk about climate, like the climate movement a little bit more, because if there's sort of like an optimistic way to view the shitstorm of 2020, it's that there's been like a much more clear connection, I think, in public discourse between these natural disasters and climate change than there has been in previous years. And uh, so maybe that presents some opportunities And I think that's especially important to talk about because the Global Day of Climate Action will have just happened when we release this episode. It is slated for um, September 25th. So it seems like a good opportunity to reflect on where the climate movement is and where it needs to go in 2020 and beyond. So I guess, um, Robbie, I'll ask you, it sort of felt like last year was a watershed moment for climate activism. The global climate strike last year drew huge crowds in cities all around the world, and there was a lot of attention on political agendas to climate action. And when I look at 2020, it really just doesn't seem like there's that same momentum. Do you you think that's true, or am I being too pessimistic? No, I think that's definitely true. One of the challenges of trying to do a movement that is based on scientific, like, principles and ethical principles and, you know, trying to create a livable future for people is that you have to also create livable presence. And in the middle of a global pandemic, that's that's kind of hard to do with the same sort of style of mass movements that we were seeing in 2019. But I think you kind of hit it on the head when you mentioned that it, the discourse around this kind of stuff has changed. Because even if, you know, people aren't out in the streets as much as they were in 2019, again, because there's a global pandemic, at least we've managed to demonstrate that there was an impact from 2019, Mm -hmm. that all of these climate strikes, all of what that was building up to have created a much broader consensus around the issue. And I think have given people a lot of tools as well for understanding 2020 in that context of this was a year where climate change started to become real. And was like obviously visible and 2019 gave a lot of people the tools to talk about that more effectively. Or at least Mm -hmm. that's kind of my takeaway is that even if 2020 has been a bit of a 
a bummer year for climate activism, then at least we're able to like take stock of what 2019 managed to accomplish. Oh, that's a very optimistic way to put it. <laughs> I like it. Um, what, what do you think then are some of the, the biggest accomplishments that the climate movement has made, not necessarily in 2020, but um, over the last sort of like recent period of history? Oh, geez. I feel like the fact that we have people seriously talking about Green New Deals and Green, New Re- like green Recovery plans has been a real like important moment in terms of creating some policy around climate change. And I think as well, just the ability to get people mobilized around it. Like, I think that one of the big accomplishments is just how many people were able to be mobilized for those climate strikes, that even if not every single one of them suddenly became like uh, a super radical climate activist, the fact that we were able to build that kind of consensus was really powerful. I think... 2019 and everyone who is working on bringing people out into the streets really deserves some congratulations for that. Unfortunately, yeah, like a lot of those policy things haven't really translated. Like it's difficult to say it's like, oh yeah, there was a big green victory here. I don't really think that those have materialized as much as just there is a growing feeling that this this is a real fight and a real struggle that we're in. Like living in Alberta, I love to see how much energy the premier spends having to try and like defend against green activism. Like the fact that there is a war room in Alberta. Um, I'm actually, I'm wearing a t-shirt uh, called the Un-Albertan Activities Committee uh, right <laughs> now. I like wearing it whenever I'm doing environmental stuff. And it's just like the ability to put ourselves on the map as like a serious political threat to the established order is, you know, again, something that deserves some accolades and some like good feels, even amongst all of the the garbage that's happening. For sure. And, and what about on the other end? What do you think are some of the biggest weaknesses of climate activism to date? This is something that was actually, I've been thinking about a lot since XR International tweeted out that uh, basically a condemnation of a banner at an XR Scotland event that said socialism or extinction. And it ties in, I, I don't want to talk too much about the actual incident, but how it ties into a broader issue that I've found in environmental activism, which is that it sometimes tends to treat itself as ahistorical and apolitical, despite the fact that it's dealing with historical problems and political problems. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges to overcome, especially because of the way that a lot of people get involved in climate activism. And it's something that I was thinking about when we were doing trainings and onboardings as well, is that a lot of people come to climate movement from a place of just like trauma and fear. Like uh, in Alberta, after the wildfires, there were a lot of people who wanted to get involved because they were terrified they they aren't coming into it with any real like knowledge or understanding of the political situation or the history of environmentalism and so being able to like teach those things is very important and i find that that's often been lacking that environmentalists treat themselves as if they were just like apart from everything that it was a concern it is a concern for everyone but that doesn't mean that it doesn't also embed itself in the other concerns of everyday life 
And so making sure that environmentalism is political, that it's dealing with the intersections of capitalism and racism and imperialism is critical. But those are also really hard conversations to have in a place where there are some people who just come to you and when you talk about like radical politics, they get spooked because that's not what they were there for. They were there because they don't want their children's asthma to be aggravated by historic wildfires every year without realizing that in order for their children to be able to breathe, like a lot of other people also have to be able to breathe that right now can't. Yeah, I wonder whether that's sort of like an inherent challenge in like trying to mobilize around a threat that is so all-encompassing and so like time-sensitive that you have to build these sort of broad coalitions in a way that you you, I mean, most successful activism does build broad coalitions in some sense, but I, I would argue that climate change needs to build coalitions that are much broader, and uh, there isn't really, like, the luxury of being able to incrementally do that, so. Well, and maybe as climate change slowly start, stops being so abstract and starts being a lot more real, we'll see that. I do worry about that. Um, on the flip side, because one of the challenges when you get people who don't have that sort of like backing of understanding around these issues is that they they get scared that like the issue of hoping that climate change will become real and therefore people's responses to it will become real ignores that like their responses can be very bad, <laughs> like actively bad. Like I think about all the time that I've had to spend internally within the environmental movement talking about how overpopulation is not something that we should really be addressing in the ways that we do that like the ways that accelerationism is not going to be helpful. Um, And just looking at all of the examples of disaster capitalism that we've seen with COVID that like just because environmental catastrophe is going to be creating these massive crises doesn't mean that our political and economic leadership is going to like rise to the task and do good stuff. It means that they are going to pillage and loot as much as they can before it all falls apart, which is uh, kind of what's happening in Alberta right now. <laughs> a little, yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point because as as people start to really feel like that climate change is real and like it's one thing to know it and it's another thing to just like internally realize it people don't change overnight so anyone who has really terrible i don't even like even racist views might suddenly decide oh well the best way to solve this problem is to do something terrible you know what i mean yeah and can also um prompt uh sort of us versus them mentality. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Something to watch for. One of the other challenges as well is that when it is that sort of like visceral and immediate terror, it also sometimes doesn't result in people getting involved. It results in them like checking out and disappearing. Like one of the interesting forms of attrition that I've seen in environmental groups is people who like bug out that they go from understanding that like they disappear off the face of the earth because they're more interested in their garden and their self-sufficient permaculture and the activism slips aside to just that survival instinct of 
we need to make sure that we are going to be okay. It's almost like the problem is just it it can be it can feel so overwhelming and you're like there's nothing I can do so I might as well turn inwards and take care of myself and the people I care about. Yeah, and that is historically yeah. rooted as well. Just to like jump in on that because it like again the environmental movement is not unique in the challenges that it faces. Well, like, the specific challenge, yes, but the sort of like the fundamental threat to survival is not necessarily new for a lot of people mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of different places. And there's been a lot of instances in the past where it's like, you know, you have these little utopian communities that pop up all throughout the early 20th century and late 19th century, where that was basically the same problem of people saying that, like, we need to get rid of capitalism, but we don't think that it's possible to do it in a mass way. We'll just do it for ourselves and the people around us. And so you get this massive proliferation of little like socialist communes out in the woods, but none of them created a global change. <laughs> I guess the difference being that like you can live in your little socialist commune and that might be a good way of life. But if you're constraining your environmentalism to just your own community, like that doesn't protect you from air pollution. It doesn't protect you from sea level rise, like. So climate change is all encompassing in a way that might, um, I mean, it's created collective action problems, but as it starts to be more tangible, it might um, push people to be active in a way that we haven't seen. Maybe that's an optimistic spin on it. Mm -hmm. Like when one can certainly hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, like, do you think that, that um, climate change activism has gone down in 2020? mostly just because of the pandemic or do you think there like might be other things going on that's actually interesting because i know that like the immediate problem was the pandemic and the fallout from it i'm not entirely sure how much environmental activism would have been affected globally by anything other than the pandemic i think in the united states there's definitely some interesting interactions where in the interests of building those stronger coalitions, I think it would have been wise for environmentalists to get on board with the general racial justice issues that are happening in the US right now, in large part because I also consider them to be strongly overlapping. There's a, a fantastic clip from a city council session where an activist is pointing out that – I think it's from Syracuse uh, in the northeast of the United States – that 90% of the police department of Syracuse lives in suburbs outside of the city. And so all of that money is being extracted from the city center and sent out to the largely white-dominated suburbs. And it was just pointing out that this is a kind of extractivism. And so mm -hmm. whether we're fighting extractivism in terms of its pollution effects, in terms of its effects on indigenous land and indigenous lifestyles, or even just racial justice issues, it's all linked to those same fundamental problems. And I would really hope that the environmental movement in the US would have sort of latched onto that and not tried to do some of the weird stuff that was being talked about in sort of early 2020 before the pandemic of trying to do like a environmental movement that didn't think about race and didn't engage on that issue. And I'm like, that would have been a really big mistake. So hopefully that is part of the reason why it kind of died down in the US is that people realize there are other 
also important issues that need to be addressed that are deeply linked as well. Yeah, and I think um, in a sense, that's been a dynamic in Canada too. But I think certainly a lot of climate activists did not want to overshadow racial justice protests um, throughout the summer. But I think maybe one of the sort of opportunities is that in, in Canada, when you talk about racial justice in a lot of contexts, that's talking about Indigenous reconciliation. And Indigenous activists have for generations and generations been at the forefront of the environmental movement. So there's, I think, a a really obvious synergy and like one that's impossible to overlook in, in a way that maybe the linkages are still there in the United States, but you have to you have to put in a few more logical steps to understand why defunding the police is also like a climate policy, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it was actually interesting because that was some perspective that I got. There's a great podcast series, um, The Secret Life of Canada. It's put out by the CBC. And they did a, a two-parter on Kanasatage. So what some people might more accurate or might uh, remember as the siege of like the Oka crisis. I keep on mixing them up because I'm like, the siege of Kanasatage, the Oka crisis. And they were just pointing out that like these communities have been in crisis for 400 years. And so that was really useful perspective for me on the climate issues because it's like, oh yeah, for a lot of people, we are entering into crisis for the very first time that for like a lot of white middle income communities, like climate change is the first time that they've really felt like their livelihood was in under threat. And for a lot of other communities, that has been the default mode of existence for hundreds of years. And so there's a lot to be learned from that, both in terms of how we resist oppression, like how we create these changes, but also just making sure that we're giving ourselves breathing room to be able to say that it's like, there are other issues that are also important. There are centered, like there are places that those interact that we need to be mindful of. Sort of looping back to that coalition building, you can't build effective coalitions unless you're aware of that history and unless that informs what you're doing. That if you, if you don't attend to those kinds of things, you're just not going to build a big movement because there are lots of people who have been doing this a lot longer um, who've been facing crises that are just as terrible, but have been going on for hundreds of years. Uh, and they kind of know their shit at this point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if we can maybe talk a little bit about the prospect of a green recovery as sort of like the other aspect of how the pandemic might impact climate activism. So that's, I think, one major question, right, is uh, as... Assuming we survive a second wave, um, once governments start to look at recovering from the pandemic, are they going to prioritize a green and just pandemic recovery? Or is it going to be a pandemic recovery that is sort of like austerity or pro-industry, you know? Well, I know how Alberta is going to go. <laughs> Well, I think what's indicative of this was that, you know, Justin Trudeau promised to plant two billion trees or something, which I think I addressed on the the last time I was on pullback, that planting trees is not going to save us. Um, but actually, exactly zero of those trees have even been planted. 
Yeah, that's true. He did reaffirm that commitment in the throne speech. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, (laughs) cool, I guess. Robbie's not impressed. (laughs) Yeah, I don't put the chances of like a genuinely green recovery as being very high in like any sort of Anglosphere countries. Um, Obviously, like in the US, the Democrats are firmly against it. Uh, the liberals have no plans to do anything meaningful. Um, who knows? Maybe if they survive the confidence vote after uh, the throne speech and Jagmeet Singh like twists his arm, maybe we'll get a little bit. The NDP doesn't want an election. They're not going to twist the liberals' arm that hard. <laughs> They're broke. So this, this is a question I have, Rob, because um, I, I'll just set the context a little bit because um, if you're not from Canada, the throne speech is going to mean nothing to you. And even if you are Canadian and you're, if you're not hyper politically aware, you probably <laughs> it still might mean nothing. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so the, the throne speech, it's um, a speech that happened on the 23rd of September, which is yesterday for us as we're recording, but it'll be a little farther away for you guys. And uh, it essentially sets out government's priorities, and it was kind of seen as the document that was going to articulate how Canada will handle its pandemic recovery. And uh, it had a section on climate change, which some pundits have seen as being fairly strong and others have seen as being fairly weak. Um, I'll just sort of give a brief overview So the government pledged that climate action will be a cornerstone of the plan to support and create a million jobs across the country. Creating a million jobs was um, one of the big pledges that they made without, I would argue, much detail behind how. There were some specific commitments on climate. Uh, One of the big ones was uh, committing to legislating a goal of net zero emissions by 2050. That is what the Green Party campaigned on. Having said that, setting a commitment and actually meeting it are two different things, and the government hasn't really been meeting its Paris Accord targets, so you can question how useful that is. They also said that they would invest in retrofitting homes and buildings, in disaster-resilient infrastructure, public transit, zero-emissions vehicles, um, and urban parks. Those are all nice things, but they didn't say how much they'd be investing. And yeah, planting two billion trees was sort of the other thing. Uh, But they also included a section saying they would support oil and gas and some other extractive sectors. So I don't know. Were you won over by those initiatives, Robbie? Or are you still waiting to see details? Or are you cranky about the whole thing? (laughs) I will admit I did not listen to or read the throne (laughs) speech um, because I just, at this point, I don't consider the liberal government to be accountable to anything that it says at any point. So maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic in that sense. (laughs) Um, But I mean, they bought a pipeline. They are still buying the pipeline. There's a campaign in the works from 350.org. I know they were pushing fairly hard to try and get a audit of how much has already been spent on TMX and how much it's over, like already blown the budget that was put Mm -hmm. forward by the liberals when they first bought it. So, no, I I don't really, I didn't listen to the throne speech, and I don't think that it contained anything useful. Um, I've been far more interested, actually, in the leadership race for the Green Party, 
because I think that actually has some interesting potential. But yeah, uh, as I was mentioning to someone else, the Green Party, as it currently stands, is also not useful. Um, I don't think that they've been particularly effective, even on the climate side of things. But the leadership race offers like an opportunity to launch what amounts to a coup of the Green Party and actually like put eco-socialists in positions of leadership, unlike the current party. And that might actually produce like some interesting discussion and interesting force coming out of that party. What actually alerted it alerted me to it was Elizabeth May, like saying that it was a coup by outsiders trying to take over the Green Party. And I was like, sweet, sign me up. Where's my membership? <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking a little bit about um, COVID as a potential opportunity to sort of reset policies and reading about a green and just recovery. And I came across this really depressing set of facts that like Bill Gates weirdly wrote. Um, so I'm just going to quote from him because I actually thought it was a really useful sort of perspective setting. As of last week, um, and he wrote this in August, more than 600,000 people are known to have died from COVID-19 worldwide. On an annualized basis, that's a death rate of 14 per 100,000 people. How does that compare with climate change? Within the next 40 years, increases in global temperatures are projected to raise global mortality rates by the same amount, 14 deaths per 100,000. By the end of the century, if emission growth stays high, climate change could be responsible for 73 extra deaths per 100,000 people. In other words, by 2060, climate change could be just as deadly as COVID-19, and by 2100, it could be five times more deadly. So yeah. <laughs> Woof, is that how we're ending the episode? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to now. <laughs> it would be a good way to end. Um, Robbie, say something more uh, optimistic to close us out. No, even just to unpack that. Like, it doesn't even have to be optimistic, but... Okay, no one was going to say anything. Um. <laughs> Nobody wants to. That's so depressing. Like, what is there to say? Like, holy shit, we need to change everything and the people in power suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was um, a really great article talking about how climate change has also been disjointing our ex like experience of time. And it was interesting because it was sort of framed in this way that with the pandemic, we're thinking a lot about 1918, you know, 100 years ago with the Spanish flu, while at the same time, we're looking at a year in terms of like, you know, forest fires in Australia and Brazil and the United States. Like, we shouldn't forget that the Australian wildfires also happened this year. Um, we're looking at these things that, according to our predictions, weren't expected to sort of become the norm until you know, 2100. And suddenly we're getting sort of like that flavor of that happening at the same time as we're facing a global pandemic that's pulling us back 100 years. We're facing a political situation that's also tearing us back 100 years. And then at the same time facing a climate crisis that is sort of like feeling like we're living in a dystopian sci-fi novel uh, that was supposed to be written in, you know, you know, set in 2092 or something. I guess if I could put a Slightly brighter spin on things. <laughs> At the very least, um, yeah, this has been a catastrophic year. Uh, yeah, we're not taking nearly enough action on climate change and the effects are 
seemingly a lot more dramatic than we thought they'd be very soon. But on the other hand, that seems to be convincing people that climate change is a big problem. So there was a poll that was done in a bunch of countries, and it found that 71% of people around the world uh, agree that climate change is a problem that's as serious as COVID-19. Oh, good. Does that include the people Um, who believe that both of them are a hoax? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it could be logically consistent to agree with that statement then. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a thing too. My goodness. <laughs> oh, we there's just no. Yeah, we can't. We, oh, there's not enough time. <laughs> there's not enough podcast airtime in all the world right now. <laughs> but it, it does circle back to again when I talk about the need for the environmental movement to root itself in history. I think that also matters because the same reasons why people think that COVID is a hoax are also true of why they think climate change is a hoax, that a lot of the forces driving both of those are identical. And the more that we start to see those interrelations and see how these struggles are intertwined, I think the more effective we become in in fighting them. So what you're saying is it's Facebook's fault that climate change is happening. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure. I, I, I'm happy to blame Mark Zuckerberg for most things. I mean, we're all we're all just peasants here under the heel of the people above us, but we can vote for now. I don't know about the United States in a couple months, but, you know, for now. <laughs> all right. So climate change also is about uh, fairness and democracy. And uh, unfortunately, we're seeing problems in all of those in 2020. I don't know how to make this more optimistic. I just keep making it worse every time. <laughs> uh, do you want me to take a crack at it? Do it. Yeah. So vote understanding that it is literally the least that you could do. Uh, And in this situation, it is very likely to make a huge difference no matter who you vote for. So knowing that it's important to start building extra parliamentary authority. This is this means that we need to create social movements with teeth so that it doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter how they got there. It doesn't matter what was in their platforms. If you create strong movements outside of what we traditionally think of as politics, then you have the ability to change those outcomes, even if your preferred party loses. And so that's the sort of like big takeaway is go out Mm. and it doesn't have to be leading climate strikes. It can be doing mutual aid projects in your city. It can be changing your community, but doing it in a way that is grounded in history and grounded in that knowledge that it's like, we are not just here to create a community garden. We are here to talk about food sovereignty. We are here to talk about the economics of making sure that everyone eats. We're here to talk about like serious, real issues that go beyond the walls of our little garden. I think when we start doing that, we create strong communities, strong cities, strong uh, like political bodies. And maybe, maybe that's how we can get stuff done, even if the legislatures continue to be filled by people who break all their promises and lie all the time. Yeah, so optimistic. So yeah, <laughs> I like that. Find a, an issue you care about and join a community for it. Don't don't just join the community. Politicize the community. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Thanksgiving's coming up. Why not use it to uh, talk about your favorite political issues? Radicalize your family. <laughs> it's always uh, a pleasure to have you, Robbie. <laughs> Always fun to be here to talk about how the world is ending. (laughs) We appreciate it. 
Thanks for tuning in, guys. As usual, you can reach us on Twitter if you have any feedback, suggestions, comments, or if you just want to add us to yell for whatever reason. We are at Pullback Podcast. Uh, Robbie, do you have anything you want to plug? Not in particular. Support mutual aid efforts in your city. Um, wherever you live, there are people doing good work. Go find them. Give them a hand. Yeah. That's such a nice plug. <laughs> All right. The end. <laughs> Peace out. Um, do you want to do the intro, Kyla? Um, I'll be honest, I'm not 100% sure what we're talking about today, so no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Just along for the ride, okay. Yep. Uh... <laughs>